Are you liking the sun? That's right. That's right. That's good. Hey, uh, if, um, if you have your Bibles tonight, uh, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament, chapter 18. And while you're turning there, um, I want to kind of just open up with a statement. Usually uh, we try to, you know, try to start with some story and get you to laugh and then, you know, sucker punch you and pull you in and all that kind of stuff. And tonight we're not going to do that. Um, we're going to kind of get down to business right away tonight. As you're turning there, I want to just kind of Talk about a statement for a minute that is about as simplistic as it gets when it comes to uh, the message that the Bible has for us. Um, and that is that um, God wants to be first in your life. All right? So when I say that, you, there's probably, you're probably thinking, oh, I know that. I've heard that, studied that, know all about that. And yet, you know, here's the thing I've really been wrestling with recently. And that is, um, even though I know that, even though the Bible's just clear about that. I wonder sometimes if that has really sunk in very far in terms of our thinking, in terms of our our, our soul, that God wants to be first in our lives. When we look at the uh, at the Big Ten, the the Ten Commandments, the very first one that we have um, in Deuteronomy 5 7 says this. In fact, let's read this together. You shall have no other gods before me, right? So I don't know about you, but you know, I read that. And I'm like, well, that's, that's pretty clear. Now, God says he wants no other gods before him. And uh, I don't know what you think when you see that word before, but I was asking people the last few weeks when, you know, he says no other gods before me. What, do you, what does that mean to you? And people are like, well, I think that means that he just doesn't want there to be any other gods in my life that are as important as him. In other words, like God wants controlling interest in my life, like 51%. It, you know, that would be controlling interest. He's probably good with that. But it, you're, you're really missing the point of that passage. That word before in the Hebrew literally means to just clear everything away. So when he says, I don't want any other gods before me, he says, I don't want any gods in your life within, you know, throwing distance. None. He doesn't just want to be number one in your life. He wants to be the only thing in your life. In fact, Jesus made it very clear. It's hard to misunderstand him. In Luke 10, a lawyer came up and asked him, you know, what, what's the most important commandment? And uh, so he stayed pretty consistent with his father. And he put it this way. Here's the most important commandment. Love the Lord your God with what? All. So you, you kind of get that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all. There you go. You got that. All your soul and with your strength and with yeah, with all your mind. So he, he's kind of clear. He's, he's saying, you know, God doesn't just want most of me. God doesn't want just, you know, 51% of you or 75% of you. He says God wants all of you. God wants to be first in your life. God wants to be it. God wants to be first in your affections, first in your time, first in your decisions. He wants to be the influencer in your life. Now, sometimes we think about that. We think about, uh, you know, these passages that we've looked at, and maybe you don't have, maybe you've never said it this way, but I have heard people say this, like, what's the deal with God? Why is God so demanding, you know? Why, why is he like that? Is he, is he got, like, self-esteem issues? And, you know, I mean, is he, like, just really needy? And uh, he's, he's not all he could be if people aren't groveling and, and on their knees and, and worshiping him? I mean, what, what's the deal with that? And that's, that's actually a really good question. 
What is the deal with that? Why is God so demanding? I just, I ask the question because, again, as, as obvious as this is in Scripture, it still seems lost on us. So we might want to ask that question. And, of course, the answer would be, well, God doesn't need our worship. God doesn't need our affection. He doesn't need any of that stuff. There's nothing that we can do to add to who God is. God is, he, he is perfect, he is complete, and you don't complete him, and I don't complete him. There's nothing that we can add to the essence of God and who he is. And that's not really what any of this is about. God doesn't demand that he be first in our life for him because he doesn't need it. God does it because we need it. We need for God to be first in our life. The reality is, of course, that God is the source of all things, the sustainer of all things, the center of all things. When, when God is at the center of your life, then your life can make sense. And then you can have meaning in your life and in and, and challenges. There you can find the power of God and the, the direction of God. And I would put it this way, when God is first in my life, that while there's a lot of things that, that kind of come in line, there's two things uh, that come to my mind. The first is that when God is first in my life, God is pleased. And now, God doesn't need you and he doesn't need me, but he wants you and he wants me. And I, I don't know if that makes sense to you that there's a difference between the two. God doesn't need you. God can go on. He, he, he went on before he made you. He'll go on afterwards. But he wants you because he loves you. He created you to be the object of his love. Sometimes we can get that, that want and that, that need mixed up. He doesn't need us, but he does want us. But, but the second thing is that when God is first in your life and in my life, we find ourselves being tremendously blessed. And there's a lot of reasons why we could say that, but I guess one of the things I would say is this, that when God is at the center of my life, then I'm living in reality. I don't know if that makes sense for you, but, but to live where God isn't the center of my life is to live something that isn't true. It, my life isn't reflecting the reality of my existence in the universe when God's not at the center of my life. When I'm living a life of obedience to God, when I'm living a life of worship uh, to God, that's when I'm living in reality. And when I'm living in reality, then life's going to make sense. The good times are going to make sense. The hard times are going to make sense. The challenges, I'm going to find God there in those times. But, but here's the danger, and you know this as well as I do, that, that there are, there's a temptation at times to let things come into our life that begin to take some of our affection and, and begin to take some of the influence in our life. It's not usually that something comes in and just pushes God off the throne. It's more like a kind of a maybe a false god or kind of an idol creep, isn't it? Where things just slowly start to come in our life and we let those things start to share the throne of our life with God and pretty soon they're, they're nudging God off. We, we, we call that the sin of idolatry. We, we, the Bible calls that having false gods. What's a false god? A false god is just anything that competes for God's place in your life. Anything that competes for God's influence in your life. False gods promise what only the true God provides. I want to think about that for a minute. False gods promise us 
what only the true God can provide for us. So we might think, for instance, of maybe something like money. Money's a pretty popular false god, isn't it? I mean, what do we think when we think about money? Well, you hear people say like, well, money can bring security. I have people in my life who, who have told me, money is security, money is life. When I have lots of money, I feel secure. And when I don't have money, I feel very insecure. And that's, that's one of the, the temptations of money is to think that money can bring security and money can bring happiness. But what happens? How much, how much security does money bring when you find out that you have a terminal disease that no amount of money can cure? How much security does money bring you then? You see, that's what false gods do. They promise what only the true God can provide. How happy can money make you when you lose something that's, that's dear to you and no amount of money can ever bring that back? Now, don't misunderstand me. Money isn't evil. The Bible's clear about that. It's just that when we look to money to do what only God can do, that's when for us it becomes evil. That's when for us it becomes a false god. It becomes an, uh, uh, an idol. Now, in Elijah's day, and we're kind of going through some of the major events in the life of Elijah, uh, People had lots of false gods back then. And you know, last week we told you about uh, King Ahab at the time of Israel um, and his wife, whose name was, anyone? Jezebel, right? There you go. Just a great couple, you know. And uh, these two people are systematically trying to lead God's people away from the true God towards, towards false gods. In particular, um, the, the God of Baal. And in fact, we would say that there were many different gods um, that went by the name of Baal. There was the sun god and the fire god and the rain god and the fertility god. There was all these different gods. Baal had many different kinds of uh, uh, facets uh, to his false godhood, if you will. And, and they promised all sorts of things. If you worship Baal, your, your crops will grow. You'll have prosperity. Uh, you'll have a better life, um, uh, fertility. And so Elijah comes on in, in this situation and he confronts Ahab. Remember we talked about this last week. He just, God leads him to walk up to the king and say, you know what? You're going down an evil road. You are, you're not living out God's plan for your life. And not only are you worshiping a false god, but you are forcing other people to do the same. And so Elijah confronts him and he says, there's going to be no rain, right? For three and a half years, there's going to be no rain. And then right after that, you might remember God says, I want you to go to the Kirith Ravine, talked about that last week, to the place of being cut off, where he goes through this, this, this period of, of growing in his dependence on God. And then from there, uh, he goes to Zarephath, and he goes to the house of a widow. And you might remember that God miraculously feeds him there as well. And then eventually her son dies, and, and Elijah does something that, to our knowledge, has never happened before. He raises someone from the dead. And uh, during this whole period of time, Ahab and Jezebel are seeking out God's prophets, having them put to death, and they're looking for Elijah as well. So today we're going to pick up the story in chapter 18, and we're about three years down the road now from where we left off last time. And God finally, you know, rings the bell and says, Elijah, it's time to stop hiding, and I want you to go confront Ahab. And so through a uh, a little bit of communication with a guy named Obadiah. They finally connect up and, and we pick up the story in chapter 18, verse 17, when Ahab and Elijah see each other for the first time in quite a while. And this is how they greet each other. It says, when Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler 
of Israel. So they're just really happy to see each other. And that word troubler sometimes is translated as the word snake in Hebrew. So he's kind of like, you know, you low down, no good, dirty snake, you know, uh, when he sees him. And he, because he's blaming, and this is so funny to me, Ahab blames Elijah for the drought, for the famine, for the suffering, for the death of, of so many people. Uh, that's what he does. And so um, Elijah basically says, you know, I'm not going to take any of that from you. And he shoots back. He says, now I have not made trouble for Israel. He replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the balls. These, these different gods. Now, Elijah's confronting what we would call today polytheism. And that is the idea that there are, that there are many gods. Now, the Bible teaches monotheism, which is the idea that there's only one God. Just one God. Now, we understand that that one God in Scripture uh, has a very complex essence, if you will. We, we refer to it as the Trinity, but there's only one God. But Elijah is confronting polytheism, the idea that there are multiple gods, that there are many gods. And the idea back in those days was you would just, you would um, kind of pick as many gods as you need to, to to make sure that you had all your bases covered. So maybe on Saturday, you would worship the God of the Hebrews, you would worship Yahweh and uh, hopefully get some, you know, in some of his good graces. And maybe on Sunday, you might worship um, the sun god of Baal, you know, and, and uh, that, what else would you do on Sunday? And then maybe on Monday, you would, you know, worship the Baal god who saw, oversaw rain, just so you covered that basis. And then maybe on Tuesday, um, you know, for your, your crops. And so they would worship all these gods. And a lot of times you would go into their homes and they would have little statues, little what we call idols or icons of all these different gods in their house because they were just trying to cover all their bases. And of course, today, we're too sophisticated to do something like that, right? We would never worship Baal. But we might look to some other things, being the sophisticated people that we are, sometimes to provide for us what maybe we can't trust God for. Uh, Maybe one of the idols that we might worship today is the idol of money. I know that's way out there, but uh, maybe you've heard of that. People who do that, people who look to money to provide for them what only God can provide, and they start to allow money to influence the decisions that they make more than the Word of God. For some people today, maybe they're too sophisticated to worship uh, the God of Baal, but maybe uh, they worship their possessions. It has a huge influence on their life. Maybe it's uh, their career or a hobby or, or a family, a relationship. But when you elevate something to God's rightful place, we call that idolatry. And I guess I would just ask you the question, do you have any false gods in your life right now? Anything in your life that influences you more than Jesus Christ himself? Something that has more influence on your decisions than the teachings of Christ. Something that has more of your affection than God himself. Something that gets more of your attention. Something that's on the throne of your life. And I thought about that over the last few weeks as I was preparing for the series, and I, I took some time to look at my life, and I thought, you know, I think I have a few. I think I've struggled with some. They probably don't surprise people. I'd say probably one of the false gods that I've had to struggle with over the years is, uh, is ministry. And I know that, that may sound funny. How can like serving God become your God? But it, it can. It really can. I mean, there, there's been periods in ministry where um, um, 
my focus has been more on trying to make people happy. Because I, I, I don't know if you've ever been in a church where people aren't happy, but that can be really ugly. And I've had lots of friends that have been in churches where people aren't happy, and that's ugly. That's, that's not good. That usually isn't a good thing. And there have been times when I've just kind of really been starting to get focused on that. Better be careful what I say. Better be careful what I do. Now, it's great if people can be happy, but if that becomes more important to me than pleasing God, that's become an idol in my life, a false god in my life. My privacy has definitely been a, a, a false idol, a god in my life. I, I'm a private person. I like privacy. I like some, you know, close the door, be alone, be with God kind of time, read a book kind of time. And they're just, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Some of you are like that. But here's the problem. The problem is when my desire for privacy conflicts with God's desire for me to not have privacy <laughs> at that moment in time. And when I choose, well, I'm going to go for privacy, God. Even I, the phone's ringing, and I know that's probably your agenda, but I don't want to answer the phone, or I don't want to do that, or I don't. See, when I allow that thing to override what God wants, that's when I have an idol. That's when I have an issue. I had pride. Pride has been an issue for me over the years. I, I had a chance to be together with a good friend of mine, a friend I call him the other day, and we were kind of talking about some things going on in my life, and his comment was, he said, you know, I just think you're kind of proud because you'll, you'll never admit when you need help. And I tell you all the time, when you need help, you should ask, you know. <laughs> but I don't like to ask because I don't like to admit when I have needs like that. When I decide to be proud like that, that that's when my will is coming in conflict with God's. That's really what he's talking about here. Now, Elijah just challenges this whole, this whole polytheistic culture. He sees the people wavering back and forth, serving this God, serving this God, going over there, doing this on Monday, serving that God on Tuesday. And he basically wants to confront the people and say, it's time to make up your mind. It's time to get off the fence. It's time to stop playing it safe and just figure out who is God. And so in verse 19 of our, our text today, it says he summons the people he says, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel, as I like to think of it, Mount Caramel. What a delicious place to go. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. It's a really big table, isn't it? He's just saying basically that, that Jezebel is paying for all these people to do what they do. And so Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. He said, you know, we're going to get together and we're going to have a showdown, and we're going to see whose God is God. And Ahab was probably thrilled because Mount Carmel was regarded as the sacred dwelling place of Baal. And so he probably thought, man, this is, we get to play this game on our home turf. This is going to be sweet. So all the prophets get together, and Elijah goes before the people, and he says, this is his challenge. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God follow him. He's like, let's just be logical here, okay? This isn't this rocket science. If the Lord is God, then you should probably follow him. But if Paul is God, then you should follow him. And what did the people say? Nothing, <laughs> okay? The people said nothing. They were just kind of sitting there going, oh, hmm, I don't know. That sounds complicated, you know? I, I think that if Elijah were here today, you know, if he were standing up here today, which would be so cool and that, I think he would say the same thing to Gateway. I think he would just look at us and say, you know what, I just have a question for you. Is Jesus God or is he not? 
Was he God in the flesh? Was he deity or was he not? Did he go to the cross and die for your sins or did he not? Did he rise from the dead? Is he seated at the right hand of God today? Is he the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father, or is he not? If he is, then I think you know what you need to do. But if he isn't, what are you doing here? You should probably go home, the sun's shining. How often does it do that? There are probably things in your yard that need some attention. Why are you wasting your time? But here's what we kind of do. Here's where we're comfortable in the church. We wouldn't say this, but isn't it kind of what we do? Well, yeah, I know, but... Really, all I really want is for Jesus to keep me out of hell, but I want to do what I want in this life. I kind of want to do my thing, you know? I want God to answer my prayers and to bless me, but I still kind of want to do those things I want to do, even though I know he doesn't like those things. See, that's what Elijah is confronting. He's just saying, man, if if Jesus is God, then you better do what he says. But if that, that thing, that false God is real, now this is the weird thing. His advice is, then you should just go for it. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, you know, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, if money is God, if sex is God, then here's my advice. Go for it. Just go for it. I mean, why would you mess around between two things? If materialism is God, I really thought a lot about this this week. Like, what, what are the gods that we struggle with the most in the church? I would say materialism is probably, as Americans, probably one of the biggest gods one of the biggest false idols that, that we struggle with, whether we know it or not. Now, when I say materialism, I, I don't just mean stuff. Okay? What I mean is the philosophy of materialism. The philosophy of materialism says that there is no, there, there's no soul, there's no eternity, there's only physical stuff. Everything that's made up of atoms is real, and anything that isn't made up of atoms is not real. That's it. And you're born, and you come into this world, and your life starts, and when you die... That's it. You're pushing up the daisies. There's nothing left. There is no life after death. That's materialism. So materialism says the only thing that's real is, is stuff. So wouldn't it just make sense if that's the only thing that's real to just go ahead and get a bunch of that stuff and enjoy that stuff because when life's over, life's over. That's it. That's materialism. Get as much as you can. If you've got to lie, cheat, steal, so what? There's really no ultimate morality or ethics in the universe. So just get it and have fun. Be selfish. They'd be stupid to ever give anything away, by the way, wouldn't it? That would be dumb because that would kind of defeat the purpose of life. I think it's just saying if you really, I mean, have you taken a look at your lives? It's kind of like we're looking and Jesus is kind of halfway on the throne and then there's money and there's materialism and they're kind of pushing each other. And he's like, you got to just settle that thing. Really? You really think that maybe materialism can fulfill your life? Well, then just go for it. Why would you mess around? What does our society say today? Oh man, our society's definitely into pleasure, definitely into sexuality, sexual pleasure. I mean, I think he's saying, if you think that's it, if you think that's God, then, you know, go for it. If you're not married, don't let that stop you. If you're married, don't let that stop you, you know? It's just because that's it. You, you know, you live and you breed and that's it. That's life, it's over. You say, well, that's kind of crass, isn't it? Well, it is. But do you see what he's saying? Just like, if that's it, if you really think that's it, why are you messing around? If you think that life is all about your job, then go for it. Why are you messing around? If it's all about your image, you know, then, then buy the clothes and get the surgery and get the hair plugs and do the whole thing, you know? Just go for it. Why wouldn't you? If it's your house, then, you know, go for it. Get the landscaping, do it right, add on, go into debt, whatever. Because when you die, it's all, you know, it's all gone anyways. 
But, but, if Jesus is really God, then logically wouldn't it make sense that you would sweep everything else aside and you would let him alone sit on the throne of your heart, alone, calling the shots? So this is what he says. I think that Elijah looks at the people and he thinks, you know, it feels to us like it's all just this thing in our head that we've got to figure out. And Elijah says, you know what? God is real. <laughs> you know, if God is really there, then he's real and we can experience him. And if he's not a false God, you know, if there's a false God out there, he can't be experienced. So Elijah says, let's put it to the test. Let's just get real here for a minute. So he says, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to settle this issue. All right. We're going to get two bulls. We're going to have some sacrifices here. We're going to get two bulls. And uh, he says, I'll let you guys choose one for yourselves and you can cut it up into pieces and make a little altar and put some wood under the altar and, and then you'll go ahead and put the, the sacrifice on the altar, but don't set fire to it, all right? Just, just put it on there. And Elijah says, I'm going to prepare the other bowl and I'm going to put it on the wood on my altar for my God, but I'm not going to set fire to that either. And then you're going to call in the name of your God. It's going to be great, all right? We're going we're gonna to have a barbecue here. So they're going to call in the name of your God and I will call in the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, hmm, he is God. There you go. No guessing, no wondering, no, hmm. And then all the people said, hmm, what you say is good, right? The people are thinking, you're an idiot, all right? First of all, we're on Mount Caramel after all, aren't we? And I mean, this is the home of Baal. This is his, this is his home turf. This is his territory. Dude, he's the God of fire. You're going to get smoked here, Elijah. So they're thinking, this is, this is great. We're going to love this. So they took the bull, given them, and they prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. It's about three hours. And here's what they say. Oh, Baal, answer us. They shouted. They're shouting. But there was no response and no one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. So they set up this altar and they prepare the sacrifice. And there's 850 professionals there, you know. And they begin to call out to the name of their God. They're, sh they're, they're shouting. They're calling. They're dancing. You know, because if shouting doesn't work, you can always dance. And they're dancing and there's nothing. There's just nothing. It's totally quiet. Now, I love about noontime, Elijah, this, this man of God, he starts like messing with him. He's like kind of talking worship smack with him. It says, then at noon, Elijah began to, what does it say? He began to taunt them, right? So they're like, they're just going on and on. They're getting tired, you know. They're getting dehydrated there. And he's, he's just sitting down there the whole time. He's watching them. He's like, hey, you guys, you should shout louder. Now, they're already shouting. He's like, you guys, you got to just kind of raise the decibels a little bit, you know? Because maybe he can't hear you. He's trying to like keep a straight face as he's saying this. He's like, surely he's there. Surely he's a God. Well, perhaps he's deep in thought. He's been thinking about the whole, you know, BP thing in the Gulf of Mexico. And he's trying to come up with an answer. And he's got his, you know, advisors in there. And he's trying to solve some world problem. And he's thinking and he can't hear you. So maybe if you yelled a little louder, then he'll hear you. You should kind of ratchet it up a little bit. Maybe he's, maybe he's busy, you know? That word busy, I wish, again, this is one of those passages where I wish somebody would just translate what it means here. Because that word, that word busy in the Hebrew literally means maybe he's relieving himself. That's what it means. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he ate something he shouldn't have eaten and he can't come to the phone right now. He's had a rough night. Maybe that's, I, can you imagine? Now just picture it. They're like worshiping. And Elijah's like... <laughs> Maybe he needs some, you know, Pepto-Bismol or something, you know, I don't know. Maybe your God has a problem. He's like, he's just totally talking smack with them, you know. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's on a trip right now. He just, he needed a vacation from you guys, you know. Or maybe he's sleeping. 
He had a long day, and he's, just, he's, he's sleeping for a while, and you've you got to wake him up. So notice what they do. They, they, like, they totally don't get the, the humor, the sarcasm here. They start shouting louder. They're, they're shouting, and they're shouting, and, and then they start slashing themselves with swords and spears, that, which was their custom. That's one of the ways they worshiped God at time until their blood flowed. There were times for them when they would feel like it wasn't enough to talk to their God. It wasn't enough to shout at their God. It wasn't enough to set up a sacrifice for their God. It wasn't enough to dance around for their God. Sometimes they felt like to get the attention of their God, that blood would have to flow. So it says midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. We're talking six hours have gone by now. But there was no response and no one answered and no one paid attention. Over six hours, trying harder and harder and harder and harder, just a beautiful picture of religion in a nutshell. Religion is always, if I can't get what I want, I'll just try harder and harder and louder and more. It's all about me. It's all about my effort. So after six hours, they're like, you know, they're just, they're tired. They're wiped out. And Elijah decides it's time to kind of settle this thing. So Elijah, it says in the process, they had knocked down his altar. So Elijah just calmly gets up, puts his altar back together, gets a sacrifice there, arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, "Uh, you know what? Uh, I need four large jars filled with water. (laughs) Okay, he's just, he's just playing with them now, okay? He goes, What's he saying? You know, I'm afraid that the fire my God sends down is going to be way too big, and um, we probably need to water this this, this thing down. So if we could get some guys with four large jars with water and just kind of take it and pour it on my offering. I need to kind of wet it down. This is way too easy for my God, okay? And so he does it, and then they they, they pour the water on there, and then he says, do it again. (laughs) And they did it again. Do it a third time. Say, he's just showing off now, all right? This is just pure showmanship. He ordered, and they, they did it a third time. And, and the water ran down all over the sacrifice and all over the altar, and, it, and there was a trench around the side, and it filled up the trench. Elijah, what's he doing? He's just like going, you guys, you couldn't even get anyone to listen to you, but what my God is about to do, I mean, you can't believe this, so we better just kind of water this thing down. And at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward, and he, he what? He prayed. Yeah, I love this. He did not shout. He did not dance. He did not cut anything. He didn't get worked up in, in, into a frenzy. Right? You know why? Because he worships a real God. A God who hears. A God who cares. A God who is paying attention. Elijah knows, I got no issues here. Elijah knows this is going to be simple. And he prayed. Here's what he prayed. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. This is more like a public service announcement, by the way, than a prayer, you know? Because everyone's listening. He's praying this out loud. Just let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Elijah says, God, let's just clear the air right now. This has nothing to do with me. In years to come, people are going to think, wasn't Elijah an amazing man? Elijah goes, it's not me. The whole, this whole thing was God's idea. No rain, God's idea. Going down the Kirith Ravine, God's idea. Going to Zarephath, God's idea. This whole showdown, it's all God. All of it. 
So God, I'm just going to, very simply, I don't need to get worked up, just answer me. Oh Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, oh Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Simple prayer. Simple declaration of faith. Why? He doesn't have to work to get God's attention. Elijah knows we have a God who loves us and cares for us and is intimately involved in our lives. So we don't have to shout. But I love what he says here. He says, what is God doing? He's turning their hearts back again. He's saying, you know what? These people used to know you, but they walked away. These people used to love you, but they've allowed some, some other gods to kind of push, push you, God, off the throne. Why are you doing all this stuff? Because you're calling them back to yourself. You want them to get off the fence. Maybe God used to be first in your life. Maybe there was a time in your life where you can remember God was solely on the throne of your life. It was God who was calling the shots. It was God that you went to for wisdom. And then maybe slowly some other things kind of crept on there. Maybe it was a relationship. And you started looking to a relationship to provide for you what only really God can provide for you. And then after a while, you allowed that relationship to have a controlling interest in your life. Maybe it, should, maybe it was a job. At first it was just a job. Maybe, it was, maybe God gave you that job. Maybe you loved that job. You were thankful for that job. But after a while, that job started to have more influence in your life than God's word. And there were times when your job would say, I want you to do this, and God would say, I want you to do this, and you went with the job sometimes. It became a, a false God for you. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's stuff. And today, God is calling you to return to him. Notice what it says happens in verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and it burned up the sacrifice, and it burned up the wood. That's not enough for God. It burned up the stones, and it burned up the soil, and then it licked up the water in the trench, right? Because that's what the water was all about, right? See what God can do. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. But they probably weren't saying it that way. They were probably a little louder than that. There's probably a little more conviction in their voice than that. How do you imagine they said those words when they saw what they saw? And that's my prayer for our church. That we would see God for who he really is. That we would turn back to God. That we would say, the Lord, he is God. In this church, the Lord, he is God. In my family, the Lord, he is God. In my life, that we could say with conviction, the Lord, he is God. Can you say that with me? The Lord. He is God. Yeah. And that's what they cried out. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that passage, I kind of thought to myself, well, duh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> if I was out and, you know, nice day, little altar and fire came down from heaven like that, it would probably be pretty easy for me to say that with some conviction. But to, why doesn't God do that today? I have people ask me that sometimes. Why doesn't God show up today like he did in stories like this, 
Well, here's what I find, even in the New Testament and today as well, is that God does show up. But God shows up in power wherever I put him first. That's where God shows up. When I give God a sacrifice, when I give God something to work with, that's where God shows up. That's why I think a lot of times we, we, we wonder, does God show up anymore? Because we really haven't, give, we haven't given God anything to work with in a long time. We haven't given God a sacrifice in a long time. One time Jesus was talking to a crowd of people, kind of about this very thing. He's talking with a group of people and they had become so focused on their jobs and so focused on their paycheck and so focused on having enough food in the house and so focused on getting some more clothes and so focused on some of this stuff that, that God had kind of been crowded off the throne of their life and their whole life day in and day out was not focused on God and serving God, but it was focused on stuff. And so Jesus says this in Matthew six thirty one. He says, here's how you get back on track with God. Don't worry about having enough food or drink or clothing because these are some of the gods that they had in their life. He says, your, your heavenly father already knows all of your needs. He knows about all this stuff and he will give you all you need from day to day. Now watch this. He says, here's how you, here's how you set yourself up to experience the power of God in your life. You'll experience God in this way. He'll meet your needs from day to day if you, notice, if you live for him. Now what does that mean to live for God? Well, he spells it out. If you make the kingdom of God, the will of God, the word of God, putting God first in your life, if you make the kingdom of God, and that concept, kingdom of God, is a strange concept for us today, but all it really means is the kingdom of God is anywhere where God's rule and his will are done. So the kingdom of God exists in heaven because God's will is perfectly done in heaven. Anytime God's will is done in your life, that's where the kingdom of God has come. So he says, wherever the kingdom of God has come, Wherever the kingdom of God is your primary concern, that is where you'll experience God taking care of all these other needs in your life. In other words, what he says is, do you want God to show up in power? Do you want to see what God can do? Then put God first. And wherever you put God first, that is where you will experience the power of God in your life. Would you like to experience the power of God in a relationship? Are you thinking it would be great to see the fire of God come down in a relationship? You know, in a good way, all right? Come down. And bless a relationship. I love to see that. Then put that relationship first. What does that mean? It means I seek that relationship God's way. And as I, be, as I put God at the center of that relationship, at the center of that dating relationship, at the center of a marriage, at the center of a parent-child relationship or a friendship, when you do that, you give God a place to show up in power to show you what he can do when you give him charge. You say, I'd love to experience the power of God in my finances. Then put God first. And you'll see what you can do. Go back some time and look in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament in chapter 3. God just clearly spells out, here's how you can experience my power in your finances. God says, do what I say. I want to experience God in my schedule. I'm tired of just living day in and day out where I get up and I have my breakfast and I do my stuff and I go to my job or I go to school or you know, come home, go to bed. I'd like to experience something different. Then start to put God at the center of your schedule and you'll see what God can do. Would you like to experience the power of God in your job? Then put God in control of your job. Stop, you know, stop bending the rules just to play it safe. What if you started doing your job the way God wants you to do your job? You want to experience God in your decision making? You want to experience God in your problems? Then put God first in that situation. Do it God's way. 
That's where God shows up. I think if Elijah were here today, he would say the same thing to us that he said to Israel so many years ago. He would say, gateway, it's time to get off the fence. It's time to stop, you know, practicing polytheism. It's time to ask yourself the question, is Jesus God or is he not? And if he's God, wouldn't it just make sense on the throne of your life, of your heart, to get rid of everything that's been, that you've allowed to have more influence in your life than him. To push it aside and to once again put God on the throne of your life. And that's where you will begin to experience the power of God. In your notes, on the back, at the bottom, I put a couple of questions for you to think about. This is not the kind of thing you could do right here, right now. It's something you have to give a little thought to. So I've given a couple of questions and I would just really encourage you this week, if you're in a grow group, to talk about these in your grow group. These are the kind of things you want to talk about with other people. You might want to talk about these with your mate or talk about it with your family or with a friend. But my question, couple for you are this. What are the false gods that tend to resurface in your life? Because I've talked with people last few weeks, so I've found we all kind of tend to struggle with a different set of false gods. What are the ones that tend to resurface in your life? Sometimes it's good just to recognize and admit that you've got that issue. Secondly, what are you looking to these false gods to do for you, and why are you so tempted to turn to them instead of God? What's the temptation? Sometimes, again, it's just good to think about that. Why is it that I turn to them? And then my question, my last one, is just what practical step will you take? Not what practical step could you take or might you take. I want to know what you're going to take. What are you going to do this week to put God at the center of some area of your life where right now, quite frankly, he's not? What would that be? Let's pray together.